is going to get turned upside down. He's going to live till around 84 AD. And so the timing you've got now on Luke is this is all around uh, the year 10 AD. He starts out. So he had probably been in his 70s when he died. And all I want to do is give you, so, uh, is give you four things about Luke that hopefully you can latch hold of uh, and ask yourself how much they apply to you and to me. Because when we encounter Luke in the chapters of Scripture, you've got a man for whom it's time for a change. It's time for a change. He's a physician, a doctor, a well-known one. Probably started life as a Gentile. He could have been a Hellenistic Jew, a, a, Jew, a Greek Jew, but most likely as a Gentile, and therefore writes for Gentiles, thinks of Gentiles. You see that right through Luke's Gospel. You see it in Acts, which is the second book he wrote. So really, you've got Luke Acts uh, as Luke's production. And he's a great master of detail, this guy. Writes for a man named Theophilus. Now, whether Theophilus ever existed is highly speculative because Theophilus is a combination of two words in the Greek. Theos means God, philos means love. So you've either got a guy whose nickname was lover of God or whose name somewhat unusually was lover of God. I don't know how you would like to be Wayne, lover of God. But that is what Theophilus would have been lumbered with if that was his name. More likely, it's his nickname. And Theophilus receives these two, these two books from Luke, great in detail. Luke himself sees his life as being that of the servant of the word, but he started out as the servant of people's bodies and as a doctor. His medical facility, his medical use, probably subsided bit by bit because Paul refers to him as a fellow servant. That means that by this time, Paul is thinking of him as a preacher teacher. How much Luke went on doctoring, we're not sure. But we do have some hints. If you read in Acts, you'll find out that Paul suffered from a thorn in the flesh. Now, we do not know what the thorn in the flesh is. And that's wonderful for preachers. They love it when Scripture doesn't tell you what something is. Because it means you're allowed to guess. And the thorn in the flesh, well, it could have been... Uh, that he had a problem with his legs. It could have been that he had some kind of long-term illness. I'll tell you what my guess is. I think, he I think that Paul had malaria. Now, the problem with malaria is you never really get rid of it. It always hangs around, and you can always get it back <coughs> again. Why do I think Paul had malaria? Because the first time we read about the thorn in the flesh operating, 
Paul goes to Perga in Pamphylia. He's on the first missionary journey. If he'd got malaria, Perga's in the hills. And what you do with malaria is you go high to get the different quality of air, which all goes together very nicely with the idea that he had malaria. Most of the other mentions fit that kind of idea. But if Luke's traveling with him, he's got his own traveling physician. Because you never get totally rid of it, you always could do with the doctor around. Very handy. So probably Luke goes on doing some doctoring. Remember, though, he's called a fellow servant, which means he's also involved in the healing ministry. So you've got a doctor who's also involved in praying for healing. Get encouraged. If you've got a profession, if you've got a career, you don't have to drop it when you meet Jesus. But the Lord can use it, and use it in all sorts of exciting ways. What you've got for Luke here is a time for change. A time when God takes a doctor and uses the doctor. A time when God takes a doctor and adds additional gifts to the doctor. A time when God takes the doctor and gives him a whole new chapter in his life. We all seem to think that it's always go on, same as, same as. And it doesn't. God gives us new chapters. God works change for us. Don't resist it when he does. Luke doesn't just stay a doctor, he becomes a writer. Where you get Luke Acts from. He becomes a historian, which is what he's doing for Theophilus. Theophilus is obviously an intelligent, educated man, and Luke becomes the historian who gives the detailed account. If you read the Gospels, they are not the same. If you're going to start with a Gospel, start with Luke. The reason to start with Luke is it was written for you because most of you are going to be Gentiles. And Luke was written for Gentiles. If you're Jewish, start with Matthew. Because Matthew was written for Jews. If you're a simple soul who's not affected by your theological background, then you could start with Mark, which is certainly the earliest, but I always reckon for people that you start with Luke and then you graduate to Mark, then you move on to Matthew. For heaven's sakes, don't start with John. <laughs> I know we're told to start people on John. That is stupidity. John is complicated. John assumes a degree of theological understanding. So if you've got a degree in theology and then you meet Jesus, starting on John is a good idea. But if you haven't, it's not so good an idea. Start with Luke, it's simpler. And Luke is very simple, very straightforward, but very detailed. So he's not simplistic. And so Luke faces change. The doctor becomes a writer and a historian, and he writes like you would expect a doctor to write. And so you get the really helpful details that prove the authenticity of Scripture, and that's the kind of background Luke comes from. 
He's probably born in Antioch, uh, Antioch in Syria, which is really where the church first thrived. It's where Paul ended up and where he and Barnabas set out on the first missionary journey. It was the missionary headquarters of the early church. He probably didn't live there. Now, I'm guessing, all right, because I'll tell you when I can't prove it. The guess is, just as the guess is malaria, my guess is that Luke lived in Troas. Now, Troas is an interesting place to live. If you look it up on a map, you'll find that it's really the gateway to so many different parts of the ancient Near East. Why Troas is so important is that there are four parts of Luke Acts that have got a different pronoun. It doesn't say he, although it's the story of Paul or the story of Jesus. In Acts, instead of he, it suddenly says we. And it seems as if Luke always joins up or leaves, i.e. the we sections start or finish at Troas which is why it would be logical for Luke to live in Troas. Can't prove it, but that's the theory anyway. And so there you've got Luke, the doctor who's become a traveling teacher-preacher, the historian of the early church, the writer of an early gospel that is a great place for people to start, probably the second of the gospels written. Mark was written first. And it's time for change for Luke. And does he handle change well? He's always flexible. So the first thing I wanted to say to you is, how flexible are you? How ready for adaptability? How ready for change? How ready for what God's got for you? How ready for a different task, a different opportunity? something different to do. This is not a challenge to when are you going to move house. It's not a challenge to when are you going to shift location. It is a challenge to how flexible are you to move with God into all the things he's got for you. Because the Christian life is so exciting, the way God brings about change. I have a friend. I've still got a few left around the world. And this particular friend uh, is South African. And he was working as a South African missionary in Mozambique. He was a physician. Specifically, he was a surgeon. And in the part of Mozambique where he was working, there was one other surgeon. And they worked together. And it was debilitating, it was a struggle, it was terrifyingly difficult because they just had hundreds and hundreds of people who wanted help and they couldn't do it all. And most of them did not need surgery, they just needed simple medical support. 
And my friend Peter, Peter Ernst, finally got fed up and gave up. What a good guy. What a great guy. That's what Luke did, got fed up and gave up. Because he saw a situation that needed change. And it was time for a change, so he changed. So my friend Peter gave up on all the people lining up for help and support and stopped working with them and gave up being a missionary doctor. You may be horrified that I'm supporting this. I think it's great. Because what he did was he shifted from doctoring and trying to help individuals to public health. And what public health means, instead of trying to cure someone's sickness, you try and stop them getting it. And so what Peter started doing was training other people at disease prevention, which is really, really significant. What he did was he particularly took women, and he took women to train around the villages in breastfeeding. Now, I am not an expert on breastfeeding. I don't have qualifications in this particular gift at all, nor did Peter. But he did know the theory. And what he did was he started to take women and trained them. Trained them to go around the various villages, teaching women how to breastfeed. Working on basic hygiene working on disease prevention. So much so that he trained hundreds of these traveling women to go and train in the villages. They stopped thousands of people contracting disease and changed the whole development of disease prevention in that part of Mozambique. All because one missionary doctor gave up being a missionary doctor and became a missionary specialist in disease prevention. But they did something else. Peter also taught these women how to go and teach Jesus. So as they went and taught disease prevention, they went and taught Jesus. And that's where the great revival the great move of God came from uh, in Mozambique in the late 80s, early 90s. Because these women went and taught Jesus, and people came to Jesus. They'd got the language, they'd got the culture, they were working with their own people. All because one guy gave up what he longed to do and did what God called him to do. It was time for a change. We need to look in our lives and be ready for when God wants to give us a change. Secondly, for Luke, it was time for companionship. Luke became one of the people who Paul specially picks out as being such a blessing, such a help. Paul mentions him in Philemon, chapter 1, verse 24. He mentions him in the passage that Tim read to us, in Colossians 4, verse 14. And is also mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
which is one of my favorite heresies, which we're going to deal with in a few minutes. Okay? So get ready, because you're going to need your heresy detector on to see if you agree with me or not. Uh, the early church historian Epiphanius, uh, whose writings I'll know, I know you're deeply familiar with, Epiphanius claimed that Luke was one of the 70 who Jesus sent out to go and to teach and preach. Can't prove it, but he was registered as that. St. John Chrysostom, in the early 4th century, sees him as the brother who Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 18. Uh, let's just turn to that and we'll see what that passage actually says. It won't take us a moment, unless we've got a Bible that is still new enough. There we go. We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. Some people think it was Barnabas, and John Chrysostom thought it was Luke. I think Luke is far more likely. In which case, the doctor's become a pretty good preacher by this time, which is encouraging to read. The Antimarchianite prologue to Luke. Oh, this all gets good fun. Marcion was a heretic in the second century. He basically... Um, distinguished between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. And so Marcion was a heretic and there were books written against him. In the prologue of one of those books, we read this in the second century. Luke was born in Antioch, by profession was a physician. He had become a disciple of the Apostle Paul and later followed Paul until Paul's martyrdom. He died at the age of 84. Whether that's right or not, it is a pretty darn early record. You are only talking about something written a hundred years after. So we would generally reckon that that had got some authority to it. He is not included in the list of Jews that Paul makes in Colossians 4 that Tim read to us which is why I think he was a Gentile. Because otherwise it just doesn't make sense why he wouldn't have been included. Paul does call him his co-worker, and Paul calls him the beloved physician, the much-loved doctor. It's a nice way to be talked of, isn't it? Much loved. The claim is that he later became the companion of Cleopas, one of those who walked the road to Emmaus. Unfortunately, we have no evidence for it at all. Therefore, I will discard it and move on. It's another of those nice theories that goes with the story that he is the Lucius mentioned among the church leaders at the beginning of Acts, chapter 13, the leadership team at Antioch. I love that idea that Luke was one of them, but again, you've got no evidence whatever apart from just one brief comment. What did Luke do when Paul was in jail? 
Well, now you're going to get the gospel according to Clive. I think Luke went AWOL. I can't imagine Luke sitting there waiting for Paul. So my guess is that he went back into Israel uh, to Galilee specifically. I think he went and found the Virgin Mary. I think he went and got a lot of the information that Luke puts in his gospel that I can't see any other way that he could have got unless he'd gone and done research. So my guess is while Paul is in prison in Caesarea, Luke is off scampering up to Nazareth and finding information from the Virgin Mary or in Jerusalem if Mary is there. So what you've got is a man who knows time for companionship. He knows when it's time to be with you and when it's time not to be. He's a man who knows when it's time for change and to move on. He's a man who knows when it's time to be a companion, to be with you, to share with you. You are going to get one of my lifetime companions coming here. One of the people who's been closest to me in my life. True love. And when Graham gets here, he and I first met in 1971 when he was at College of Education training to be a teacher. And I was uh, a young preacher who was on my first year of ministry and I needed a musician and Graham already was a well-known folk singer. So I went and sat down in his room in college and talked to him about coming and doing a gig for me in a neighboring town, which was known to be a sort of hellhole for preachers and Christians in general. It was named well. It was called Gravesend. And Gravesend it was. But it's where Gray and I first met, and it wasn't long after that that I went to see him one day and said, I think God has spoken to me, and I, I think we should start a team of uh, 10 students, ex-students, going around the country, sharing Jesus, seeing the church come alive, be touched by the Holy Spirit, beginning to see people come to Jesus, going into the schools, and the prisons and anywhere else we can get, and announcing Jesus, and I'd like you to come uh, and lead the music. And that was the beginning of uh, 40 years, 50 years, 50 years of working together. And uh, there are a, a bunch of us who've been together for pretty well that long, and we still meet four times a year, three times a year, to pray, uh, which is where I've just been. And we go to Oxford uh, in England and we go simply to sit and to pray, and to share, to build each other up. And Graham sent his special greetings to you, said how much he'd enjoyed coming to Connecticut pretty well every year to bless the church there and how much he's looking forward to coming to Saltbox and being with you. And if you want any more information, it's easy. Just Google Graham Kendrick. 
That's Graham, K-E-N-D-R-I-C-K. And if you Google Graham, then you'll find what you need to know. But the companionship, he and I have been together through all those years, on and off, and it's amazing how God does that. Luke and Paul were very like that. They've got that kind of companionship, that kind of camaraderie. They stuck together. So, time for change. Getting ready to move with whatever God has got for you. Time for companionship. Thirdly, time for commitment. No. Communication. How do you tell what's a good church? Everybody's got their own sort of litmus paper that they use. A good church is a friendly church. A good church is a church where the music is good. A good church is a church where the, the people have fun. A good church is a church where people know each other. A good, it's all kind of t- Let me tell you what I think a good church is. A good church is a church where people meet Jesus. When I was at my old church in Connecticut, a friend of mine at the church made a simple suggestion. He said, when somebody meets Jesus, now remember that's New England, 4% of the population would claim to know Jesus. It's 40% in the US. It's 4% in New England. It's the graveyard of sharing the gospel. If you ask Billy Graham, people like that, they would tell you how hard New England is. And so there at that church, we decided that every time somebody met Jesus, we would take a yellow flower. Now, these yellow flowers are horrible things. They were artificial. They weren't real flowers. And you stuck one of these yellow flowers flowers in in a vase every time someone met Jesus. Eventually, at that church, my daughter became... Uh, oldest daughter became the pastor of evangelism. And so it would be a matter of every year watching the yellow flowers building up in the vases of the church. The reason we did it like that was this. I went to another local church and I said to the pastor, who was a friend of mine, how are things going? He said, brilliantly, brilliantly. Last year, we saw... 700 people pray the prayer to accept Jesus. Now, I have a lot of problems with people accepting Jesus anyway. Because I think you can accept Jesus and accept most things and not reject the world. And I'm not quite sure that's biblical Christianity. But anyway, he reckoned they had 700 people accepted Jesus. I found that really strange because there were 40 people in his church. So I went running back to my daughter Vicky and I said, Vicky, how many people last year did we have who surrendered their lives to Jesus? She said, how many yellow flowers? 167. I said, where are they? 
She said, it's a dreadful confession. But I can only tell you where 164 of them are. I can tell you where those are, which discipleship group they're in, how they're moving, if they've left the area, which church they're going to. But I've lost three. I'm dreadfully sorry. We can't find three of them. That's more what a local church ought to be like. You shouldn't have 700 people you pray with and you lose them. But you should have folks who you find and who you see come into a life of discipleship. Not who prayed the prayer in one moment, but who started the journey with Jesus to grow in him, love him, and move with him. And people used to get very proud of who they were. One guy wrote to me and he said, he was a contractor, and he wrote and said, I'm so excited. My daughter, who I've prayed for for years, has just become a yellow flower. She's just surrendered her life to Jesus, committed herself to know and love the Lord. I said, wonderful. He signed off the letter he wrote to me, with his name, and then he put underneath, yellow flower number 55, 2009. In other words, he was the 55th yellow flower in 2009. And that's really how people used to look at it, what it means to come to Jesus. Because it's time for communication. It's time for, to tell people about the Lord. It's not time to worry about whether our church is happy clappy or any other variety is it a place where people meet Jesus is it a place where people are set on fire with the love and passion of the living God is it a place where people begin a journey where they'll go deeper with the Lord further with the Lord than they ever dreamed they would go is it a place where God moves by his spirit and comes and touches people's lives and so transforms them that we become more and more like Jesus day by day so that people can look at our lives and take note that we've been with Jesus as was true of the early church. The reality of Christianity is not that we go to a building and we go through a routine on a Sunday morning. The reality of the life with Jesus is that we come into a living relationship with a living God who moves in our hearts and lives and changes and transforms us. That's the reality and that we bring people to Jesus. It's time for communication. It's not time to talk about whether we're happy and it's done the way we want it. It's time to know whether it's the, the kind of place where people will come and find the Lord of glory and move on with him. Luke takes a lot of time in his gospel talking about salvation. He's a historian, but really he's a historian of salvation. It's what the theologians technically call Heilgeschichte, salvation history in German. It's the story of what it means for the gospel to be spread. If my Jesus is the focus of all history, then it's the story of my Jesus coming to people's hearts and lives and making them different. 
And what Luke does is he talks in his gospel about how Jesus comes to lepers, to the rejected, to Samaritans, to the Gentiles, to outsiders, to all nations, to occupiers. In fact, in chapter 13 and verse 21, uh, verse 29, he says it's people from everywhere coming to the kingdom. And the reality of church is it's not about how much of a funny internal feeling it gives you. It's about how much it is a launch pad for us to bring other people into the kingdom of God. Some of you will be with me in Israel next year. And I'll take you to a little place outside Capernaum where I once stood uh, and there was a, a party of Christians near me. Ruth was there and she got talking to a lady. Story of my wife's life. If there are people around, she gets talking to them. And she got talking to this lady about Jesus uh, and left me with the husband which normally means, you see, Ruth's the extrovert and I'm the introvert, and that normally means that I, I will sort of find a quiet corner where there isn't anybody to talk to. I had failed, and I found myself sitting down talking to this guy whose wife was talking to Ruth. And we talked for a few moments, somewhat desultorily. I found he was British. And at one point... I don't know why I said it. I said, what's your name? So he told me. He said, what's yours? I said, Clive Kelber. He said, you didn't come to Cromer once. Now, Cromer is a seaside resort in Britain. And I had been there once. I said, yes. I took a party from the University of East Anglia, from their Christian Union. He said, oh, I was there. He said, I remember it. He said, in fact, I'll never forget it. It was 1972. He said, that's when I met Jesus. You see, the reality, the reality is the most important thing you'll do in your life is opening up the way for somebody to be touched by the Spirit of God and brought to know the King of Glory. Now you may say, ah, it's all very well for you to talk like that. It's all very well to, for you to talk about the time for communication. I am not gifted that way. Well, that's fine. A friend of mine is a guy named Professor James Engel. And Professor Engel, when he was at Wheaton in its original form, ran from zero to ten. And it simply is the story of someone's progress towards Jesus. So if you are naught, you've got no interest in God at all. If you're a two, um, here's a useful curse word for occasional usage. If you're a four, well, you sort of vaguely believe he might exist, but not important to you. If you're a seven, you've got all kinds of questions about why he didn't exist and they're not really ever going to be answered. If you're a nine, you are fascinated by Jesus, but you don't know how to get any further. 
You got it? Got the idea? Zero to ten. I'll take you to the Engel scale one day if you want. But it's a, it's a wonderful thing, you see, because I'm not a clincher. I don't do nines and tens very happily because I'm not very good at it. All right? I'm a four to seven guy. That's where I'm in my strength. Uh, the old church, I used to do a thing called Answers Over Easy uh, uh, on a morning. Used to take people out for breakfast and they could come and ask any question they liked and the church would buy them breakfast. But they'd got to ask questions about Jesus uh, and listen to me trying to give them the answers. Because I love it. I love that stuff. Give me people who are just about to start the journey. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk to them. Give me someone who's ready to come to faith. I do it, but I'm not very good at it. So if you thought that God had never gifted you in evangelism because you didn't know how to bring someone to Christ and pray the sinner's prayer with them, fine. But do you know how to get them actually interested in the fact that there might be a church they could come to? Do you know how to get people understanding that there is a God who loves them? That's all part of the journey. It's the time for communication. And Luke was a born evangelist. So, time for... Time for, time for, very good. The last one is time for the cross. Time for the cross. Luke's a very self-effacing guy, full of human sympathies. A 14th century Greek historian says that his tomb was initially at Thebes in Egypt but eventually his relics were brought to Constantinople in 357. In fact, for those interested, DNA testing has established on a body there that it could have been Luke, because it fits the timing, for whatever that's worth. I am a mine of useless information. <laughs> that is a very good illustration of the fact. Now you're going to get another bit. It is generally believed that Luke was with Paul in Rome in AD 64 because Paul says he was. And it's generally believed that Paul died in Rome in AD 64. Unfortunately, there ain't no biblical evidence for that. And I don't think he did. I think what actually happened for Paul was that after he was under house arrest for two years is I think he was released. I don't think Nero killed him. And I think he went off on his missionary journeys again. I think he probably went to Spain, as he says in Romans he wanted to. I think he definitely went back to Corinth, and I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. I think he probably went to Ephesus and he may have been in prison there. And I think ultimately he got back to Rome around AD 68. Why do I think that? Well, I think that because I've read a book called 2 Timothy. And if you read 2 Timothy, you've got a problem if you think Paul died in 64 AD. 
For a start off, he lost his parchments. Where? Secondly, he left his cloak in Corinth. When? Thirdly, he puts together all sorts of little bits and pieces into Timothy that just don't make any sense if he didn't get away from Rome in AD 64. So I think he did. He was let out. I think he did go and preach Jesus because whenever Paul was let out, he went and preached Jesus. And I think Luke went with him. Because what then happens is Luke and Paul end up in Rome. And they end up in a place called the Marmotine Jail. Hands up if you've ever heard of the Marmotine Jail. Thank you. One or two of you. The Marmotine Jail was famous for one thing, and that is the flooring. Because the floor of the prison cell was human poo. You were up to your waist in vomit and poo. It was one of the worst conditions you could be in on earth. And we think that's where Paul spent his last year or so. Luke, of course, didn't have to be jailed. So Luke did something extraordinary. Again, read to Timothy. He did something extraordinary. What Luke did was he sold himself as a slave to Paul. And as Paul's slave, he had to go to prison with him. So he's in the Marmotine jail with Paul. We think he was in the Marmotine jail until the day that Paul was taken out of it and was beheaded. That's what we think happened. Now you may say, well, that's just you. No, it's not, actually. I've got the bulk of modern scholarship with me, but it's all very modern and very new. In fact, if you see the latest film on Paul, it actually follows exactly the track I've just given you. Didn't die in 64, died in 68, died in the Marmotine, was beheaded, etc., etc., etc. So why do I think this is so important? I think it's so important because of what it tells us about Dr. Luke. He knew how to live a crucified life. He knew how to face change. He knew how to be a companion. He knew how to communicate the truth. And he knew how to die as close to his friend as he could. But Luke was almost certainly released and lived another 16 years before he died. But look at how he cared for Paul. Look at what he did. So all I want to do this morning with you is really easy, because I'm done. All I want to do is say to you, are you ready to have things change? Are you ready for God to move you on? Are you ready for God to make you different? Are you ready to move forward? Are you ready for this church to increase under the hand and authority of God? Are you ready for God to choose you 
to actually make an impact uh, on Wilmington? Are you ready to be a different kind of people and a different kind of church? Are you ready for change? Are you ready for companionship? Are you ready not to stand alone, but to build friendships and relationships, camaraderie and commitment to one another? Are you ready to actually face up to that? Are you ready for communication? Are you ready to spend your life telling people about Jesus, drawing people to know and love the Lord who you've come to know and love? And are you ready to live the crucified life, to face the pain and the struggle and the suffering and know that you're not alone, to know that he walks with you, to know that he's going to leave, never, never leave you, to know that he'll never let go of you, to know that you can walk with him. That's what Luke knew. And we need Lukes in the church today. We go on saying we need Pauls. We need Lukes to make the Pauls of our generation what they could be. God bless.